Hello, and welcome to Chasing Leviathan, the podcast where we pursue big questions. My goal today is to listen and learn just a little bit more. As we head into our conversation, let me invite you to chase life's biggest questions with me, one episode at a time. Tell me a little bit about your journey uh, to becoming it, a professor in the humanities, and uh, how did you come to write this book? I saw a little bit in the acknowledgments, and that story sounded fun. But uh, you know, if you give people an idea of your professional journey and then of your journey in writing this book, uh, a defense of judgment. Yeah, great. Thank you. On YouTube. Yeah, so it's um, you know um, my my journey to be a professor, uh, you know, I always loved literature. I always loved writing. Um, and then uh, I also really learned that I hated and was not good at um, nine to five jobs. <laughs> you know, uh, <laughs> after I got out of college, I, I was fired from a number of jobs, ended up um, uh, repossessing riding mowers um, uh, before I was fired from, from, from that job. And so then I applied to graduate school um, as, as an effort to uh, um, find a more congenial space. Um, and I write, I write creatively as well. Um, and, and I've written a couple uh, uh, literary memoirs. Um, one was about uh, my experience of heroin addiction when I was in graduate school. Um, and the other one is about actual, actually about, about video games. Um, uh, but, but then I also do um, uh, literary, uh, uh, sort of academic literary criticism. And um, I've always uh, uh, loved doing that and um, and then believed in it. Um, and then what, what led me to this project in particular were a couple of moments that happened around 2015, partly due to teaching. And one of them was just this really interesting moment in a class I was teaching. My students are great. And they we were teaching Sylvia Plath. And, and a bunch of the students in the class, for whatever reason, just did not like Sylvia Plath. They did not like the poetry. Um, and they asked, you know, why do we have to read this? Right. You know what I mean? Like you say, it's really good, but, um, you know, here we are reading it and we're not, we're not feeling it. We don't like it. We don't like it. You know, why, why do we have to read it? And I thought it was a really good question, you know, and a yeah. really deep yeah. question, which was, um, what is the basis of the authority by which a literature professor such as myself assigns a work to students? And why should they trust me? Um, you know, what's involved in the whole question of literary judgment, right? And why this became an interesting, you know, in a way, why this became a, a hard question for me to answer at that moment where I don't think it would have been 30 or 40 years before um, is because academia reflecting broader social trends has become embarrassed about doing anything that looks elitist, mm -hmm. right? Um, and so professors uh, were sort of, um, you know, kind of really not talking about judgment, not talking about what we do as exposing students as, uh, to great literature, as showing them how to appreciate important and great literature. Um, 
And, uh, and the other thing that happened was I had a friend named Aaron Cunyan who wrote an article about uh, this poet who had attracted controversy because of her, because of what people took to be her heterodox political beliefs. Um, and Aaron pointed out, you know, the problem with this poetry is not that its opinions are bad, but that the poetry sucks, right? That the poetry is not good. <laughs> um, and there was a huge backlash to that. The whole idea that you would be making aesthetic judgments as opposed to political judgments was anathema to large swaths of the writing world, the literary world, the, the, the academic world. So these two incidents put together this, this, this interesting question that my students posed to me. Finally, I didn't have a great answer to that. And then this, this, this strange reaction that my friend's essay got um, led me to think, you know, hey, this is an interesting topic and, and what might be an important topic. And let me just spend some real time digging into the question of why has our culture be, be, been, become so resistant to the idea of aesthetic judgment, of judging that some literary works or artworks are more worth your time than others, and what underlies the authority that literature or art professors have in saying to students, which we do, um, these works on the syllabus are going to be important enough for you to spend time with, even though you may not like them at first. Who would you say is your intended audience for this book? Because I could see it functioning in different contexts. And maybe you have multiple audiences in mind. But it, um, so I, I'm curious if you had a primary audience or if uh, you see this functioning in, in multiple contexts. This book is... Um... You know, I, I, I write for different audiences. Sometimes when I write for publications like The Atlantic or Harper's or, or places like that or, or my creative works, I'm going for a very large, you know, a larger general audience of, of you know, people who are curious and, 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 and interested. Um, and it presumes some level of sort of education or familiarity, but, 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 but not hyper-specialized. With this, this book, I was really trying to reach literature professors, graduate students, and undergraduate students. I, can, in, I was really speaking to the world of academia um, with this project, which, which uh, uh, you know, and I, I, I think it has, um, it's of interest, I think, more broadly, because I think it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a cultural issue. But um, the people I wanted to really reach were, were educators, people who are in the position of writing syllabi, of teaching literature, and asking us to think about what is it that we're really doing here? What's the big question? It's real simple. When you make a, when I or any of us, any of the tens of thousands of literature professors or high school teachers, whoever, are teaching literature, um, when we make a syllabus and tell students to read it, what are we doing? You know what I mean? Like, 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 right. like what, what value do we expect the student to get from it? What authority do we have to recommend that? Um, yeah, so that, that, that's kind of uh, uh, the audience I was thinking about. Absolutely. I, I could see, it was obvious that it was meant for teachers, but I could see it function, and you, you mentioned this, uh, as that answer to students. Like, it is that answer to your students asking, you know, what is it now, seven years ago, um, why do we have to read this? Which of course is like uh, a, a very, it makes this book incredibly important because 
pretty sure that's just about every English student, you know, undergrad and below's question at some point, right? Um, and so uh, really, really appreciated uh, the value of this. Um, one of the things you mentioned, uh, I, I think even in passing here, um, is this, uh, yeah, talking about your friend Aaron, uh, apologize, don't remember his last name off the top of my head, but how did we come to believe that all judgments are equal? And so that's literally, that was the starting point for you, right? That he was like, the poetry's not good. And people were like, how dare you as a literary yeah. critic say that poetry is not good? And uh, that journey was really fascinating to me. I'd never heard the name, I believe you used uh, to kind of create that link, uh, the name Marshall. I was not familiar with him. Um, so if you could just draw that story out for our audience of how we came uh, as a culture to believe that uh, everyone's opinion is the same uh, or of equal value, um, uh, except maybe, you know, you might have, uh, if you're a better predictor of the market, you might have a better, <laughs> a better opinion than other people. Yeah, yeah, it's a, it's a great question. And that, that actually, yeah, absolutely. That, that was my idea after exploring this was really what has blocked aesthetic judgment is consumer, the, the, the short answer is consumer culture and consumerism. And with consumer culture, you have the idea that everyone's um, uh, opinions or choices or tastes are equal. And there's a kind of a really fascinating history to this, and it involves the extension of the principle of, equal, of the equality of persons, in which we all uh, uh, hopefully uh, uh, agree to and is a founding kind of principle of, of the United States, and, and obviously one that um, uh, you know, we celebrated Juneteenth that has, has evolved um, beyond the prejudices of uh, the actual founders, but we believe that different people are equal, right? Um, right. Uh, that, that some people aren't born better or worse than other people. Now that's one thing, and that's a very important principle. But then to extend that, which we've seen in, in accelerating ways over the past century, to extend that to this idea that everyone's opinions or tastes are equal is something very different. And that happened, you really see the roots of it happening in an intellectual context in the late 19th century uh, among a group of economists who later became known as neoclassicals. Um, and Marshall is one of the, uh, the, uh, the thinkers that I, that I talk about in the book in telling the story. Um, but their, their basic idea was um, the marketplace you know, what we want to have organizing society is not from the top down in the sense of governments or experts and so forth. We have this belief that the best way to organize, organize a society is through the marketplace, the invisible, what Adam Smith called the invisible hand of the marketplace. And how that works is that you have to let everyone go out of the marketplace and make their different choices wherever they're at. And we're not going to try to try to try to uh, create through government or, or other mechanisms ways to say that, hey, you know, you should be buying this kind of lawnmower rather than this kind of lawnmower or you should be using, you know, um, riding your bike instead of a car or or whatever else. We're just going to let the market decide. And that impulse, that that idea, the consumer is always right kind of idea, the customer is always right, this idea that 
everyone is, um, everyone's tastes and opinions are equal. That's very different from the idea of the equality of persons. And it kind of illegitimately piggybacked on that idea, on that democratic ethos in order to spread this kind of uh, consumerist ethos. Um, now, the problem with this is that if, you know, so, so, so what happened was increasingly um, people who were expert, who claimed a kind of expertise in any field became viewed with suspicion. Who are you, Dr. Fauci, just to use a, 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 you know, a contemporary example, you know what I mean? Who are you, Dr. Fauci, to tell me what is your opinion about what we should do about coronavirus better than my opinion? That's, that's just an example of how this has worked out in different in different fields. The internet has, has greatly exacerbated this fundamentally um, demo, faux democratic kind of uh, uh, movement towards equalizing everyone's opinions. But what happened was experts in all fields, now I'm concerned with experts in the arts, but experts in the arts began to feel that, um, hey, everyone's opinion is equal. Who am I to say that um, Shakespeare is is better than Stephen King or more worth your time than you know Harry Potter or whatever else, uh, 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 and then that would be a really egalitarian move. But in reality, by by for by uh, uh, when professors and people educated in the arts abandon their responsibility to share their expert judgments with their students. It doesn't create an equal playing field that everyone's choice is equal. It in fact just authorizes, it, it, it makes the only judge of value now being the marketplace, right? And so instead of a kind of canon of literary works chosen by writers and professors and so forth, people who have been educated and trained in aesthetic appreciation um, and aesthetic history and so forth, Instead of that, what you have is the Amazon bestseller list, right? Um, that's what's most important. That's what's most valuable. Whatever sells the most. And there was a very famous uh, conservative economist named Milton Friedman, who in, the, in 1960, in a book called Capitalism and Friedman, Freedom, made this point. He said that, look, buying things is just like voting. So when people buy, when, when consumers choose to let's say buy uh, uh, millions and millions of copies of Fifty Shades of Grey, they're voting for that. And that's the judgment, the democratic judgment of the people that that work is the most important work of that time. That's, that's, that, it, it's just their votes, right? And so once again, you see this conflation of democratic political principles with uh, consumerist um, free market kinds of principles. Um, and, and so one thing I want to do is to resist this conflation and say, hey, if we give up on expertise in the arts, the only source of value left there is the marketplace. And I'm not you know, going to say, you know, um, it's not like I want to go into people and say, you know, you need to stop reading Fifty Shades of Grey or whatever else because it's crap and you're, idiot and you're idiots or whatever else. <laughs> that's not what it's about at all. It's just saying, hey. You can enjoy that. That's cool. But if you're going to come and take an English class with me, I'm going to share with you some works that you may not have heard of. It may not be all over Twitter or Instagram. Um, but my uh, bargain with you is that if you spend some time and read these works with me, I bet 
that you will come away with an appreciation, with some new ways of seeing the world, with some new ways of understanding the world, and you'll be happy at the end of the process uh, uh, that you did so. That's kind of the, 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 um, uh, the claim. And so when I say, as, as a, a professor who's trained in, in, in literature and in aesthetic judgment, you know, these are some works that, that, that that's, I'm, I'm asking you to read. You have to read these books, right? It's, it's, not, it's not optional if you want to take the class. If you want to pass the class, you've got to read these books. And that's, that's part of what's happening there. It's resisting the logic of the marketplace to provide people with a different and richer form of value. Uh, one, thank you. A great summation of kind of the first part of the book. Uh, just to make sure that I'm tracking with you uh, on a couple points here, um, I'm curious. One of the ways that uh, these two different versions of equality, kind of one, you know, the equality of opinion piggybacking on equality of rights, uh, it, it does feel it kind of snuck in. I, and I, this is what I, I see when you you uh, you talk about elitist um, that that fear of being elitist is that yeah. people take their tastes very personal, right? And so they want to think that what they're doing is worthwhile when they should probably just acknowledge that it's not worthwhile, right? Like, <laughs> like they yeah. are reading something that is, and, and some people will do that. Uh, a great example of this, and this is something I wanted uh, to touch on too, uh, and you talk about this, how buying, one of your critiques is buying does not equal value. Buying is not voting. And it's yes. very clear that uh, a lot of consumers don't necessarily see like they'll understand the value of, uh, you know, Moby Dick over Fifty Shades of Grey. They know that this is, has greater aesthetic value, but they buy Fifty Shades of Grey because what they really want is something. You know, it's it's like we know what better food is, but we buy McDonald's anyways, right? Absolutely, um, yes. In part because of the dominance, you know, and uh, the bestseller list dominates, but the way you get on the bestseller list is ultimately... I would say probably marketing. And that's what we see. Marketing becomes incredibly powerful for influencing aesthetic taste, which has, which is primarily motivated by profit, right? Rather than actual education. Um, but I, I just, I can't, going back to you talking about this critique where um, buying does not equal value or reading does not even equal value. Uh, you know, I'm in the process of getting ahead on several podcasts. So I'm reading about two or three uh, philosophy books a week. <laughs> and so, right, yeah, it's intense. And I am currently sitting about halfway through the first book, um, Swan's Way of Marcel Proust. And for some reason, while reading these philosophy books, I don't find myself picking up Proust, even though I like it so much more. I find myself picking up, <laughs> you know, uh, Vampire Hunter D or, you know, like what, like looking at TikTok or and like, this is not a question of value for me. This is a question of exhaustion, which you yes, also mentioned yes. in the, in the book that people are very busy. And so, uh, which is the problem with conflating, uh, in these cases, uh, voting with buying. Absolutely. Yeah. That, I think that's absolutely right. Yeah. And, and, um, you know, my own experience and I, you know, it's, so this is this is a point that um, uh, a philosopher named Theodore Adorno made um, in the '40s uh, and um, the 1940s, um, which is that 
And it's, it's sort of a point that people have forgotten. He's been very influential, but this kind of uh, point that he makes has, I think, been forgotten, which is that uh, you can't detach the kind of con cultural consumption people do from the kind of work they're doing, right? And so, and, and what you said is exactly right. Um, he, you know, a lot of people, and I, you know, I, I went, when I, I worked for a time uh, doing manual labor as a, as, a, as a painter, and when you get done with, you know, eight, nine hours of physical labor in the summer, you know, working outside and, and painting, you know, office buildings and, and, and so forth, um, you're exhausted. You're not picking up Proust. You know what I mean? You're not yeah. picking up <laughs> Shakespeare. Yeah. And so um, it's, it's, uh, uh, it's your, your, um, one's uh, capacity for that kind of cultural enrichment is uh, circumscribed by your, the fact you have to work, you know what I'm saying? Which exactly doesn't mean, as you say, it's completely right, doesn't, and that, that, that's one of the reasons why you can't imagine as many people do that a po most popular work is even the work that most people who buy that, even they, most of those people don't even think it's that great. You know what I mean? They might think it's just something that's fun or relaxing or whatever. Um, so, so, so people themselves, uh, individuals uh, are making, are aware of these aesthetic value differences, which is part of why it's so perverse that academia has become allergic to making value judgments. And one thing I've found with my students who, you know, and I've taught at different institutions, teaching students from a, a variety of social and economic backgrounds. Um, students are hungry to have people, they, they know there's good stuff out there. They want to find it. They want to be exposed to it. They want to learn how to appreciate it. And if you're going to be a professor and just say, well, we're not going to be, I'm not saying that any of these, I'm not showing you any works that are, that are, you know, aesthetically good or powerful. I'm just going to be teaching you something about the, about history through books or about, um, you know, we're going to be looking at why these different writers were racist or homophobic or sexist or what in the past or whatever. Um, that abdication of that job of exposing students to great literature is uh, is such a problem, and 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 the um, uh, it's really the the elites who've been seduced by this false egalitarianism. Um, whereas uh, there really is a hunger among um, people who are outside of that expert group. Because they want to better themselves. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, they, they, they aspire um, to, uh, and I, like I did, I was, you know, I was, uh, I'm a first generation college student. Um, we came from Ireland, uh, working class family. Um, uh, my father dropped out of high school, you know what I'm saying? And so, um, but I grew up and I was like, you know, I know there's some really cool stuff out there, richer ways of seeing the world, kinds of works that, that and I wanted, I, I was very eager for that. And I wanted to be exposed to that. And I'm very grateful that I had teachers and later professors who did that. Um, right now, I really think this is really, again, I think it's been accelerated by the, the, uh, the rise of internet culture and social media culture. But right now, there's, I, I found in academia this enormous resistance to the idea that professors should be telling students that certain works are better than other works. And when you tell people outside of academia that this is the case, they almost can't even believe it, right? You know, they almost can't even believe it. And yet, when I, when I, you know, I, I published a version of this in the Chronicle of Higher Education, which is um, sort of the, the trade journal for academia, and I got this 
furious response from these professors at this elite, um, one of the wealthiest institutions in the, in, in the world, in which they said, you're being so elitist, right? You know, um, we are not teaching our students uh, uh, that, that, that some literary works are better than others. Um, we're teaching them, you know, these political kind of doctrines and, and all those other kinds of stuff. And so um, there is this huge resistance and it's, it's, it's accompanied by a more basic transformation in people's ideas of what higher education is for and what the humanities are for. And I think it's been going in a very bad direction. And this book was really a, an attempt to say, let's rethink this. Let's get back to basics. Let's get back to what we're trained in. I wasn't trained to give to tell you your political opinions were right or wrong. You know what I mean? Like, who am I to tell you? I will definitely say I am not the right person to tell you if your moral beliefs are right or wrong or your political beliefs are right or wrong. I know about literature. That's what I was trained in. I spent a lot of time with literature. I can work with you with that. Um, not that other stuff. And yet we have a, a, a population of professors, especially concentrated in elite universities, who do who want to say, we're, our job is to teach you uh, 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 what, uh, uh, what political opinions to have, right? Or, or what um, uh, moral views to have, right? And so we're going to be looking at different works and we're going to be judging the characters and writers morally. Um, and again, what I want to say is, well, who set you up to be a moral judge? How weird that you're accusing me of being an elitist for, for being a literature professor who's telling students what great literature is, whereas you're sitting there and you're telling your students, you know, what's, you know, uh, 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 making moral judgments left and right. So that's, that's kind of where, uh, 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 some of where, um, uh, uh, what I've been pushing back against with this project. And, and uh, to make sure I'm following with you, in some ways, what you're referencing there is the, uh, what you referred to as like the dogma of the 80s, where you have yeah, the English departments as a profession often making uh, judgments or uh, claims that uh, about that are actually transdisciplinary that cannot sustain peer review in other disciplines. Yes, yes, absolutely. Yeah, that's that's part. I mean, it's almost as if humanities professors have weirdly decided that we're going to abandon expertise in our actual subject matter and suddenly begin to uh, uh, pontificate in all kinds of subject matters about which we know nothing. So for, to take an example, um, there's a lot of literary criticism and a lot of literature professors whose main thing they do in the classroom and in their work is to pronounce on economic matters, economic theory, economic history, et cetera, et cetera. And as I pointed out in, in, in a number of places, they don't actually know anything about economics. You know what I mean? They don't know, what, you know the first thing about economics. Um, you know, I, I've done some interdisciplinary work myself, but it's, and it's difficult. And I tried, you try to do it responsibly. So I, I, I uh, uh, wanted to, I was interested in some developments in neuroscience. So I, I worked with some people at a neuroscience lab, published something in a neuroscience journal. You know, you can do that work. It's just a lot harder to do than people might think. But you do have literature professors who will have classes and books talking about technology or biology or economics and all this sort of stuff. And again, it comes back to expertise. It's, it's, it's this weird thing. By giving up on expertise, by saying, I, the professor, I'm not an expert. I'm not going to be an elitist. I'm just like you. And yet then you've got students sitting in the classroom who have to listen to you or else they fail. 
trying to get a college degree and so forth. And you're going to be, you know, pontificating on um, everything from economics to uh, to history to biology and so forth. Um, that's a bizarre situation. I call it the bizarre world of uh, of the humanities. Um, and it, it's it's just and, and and part of what I think is necessary is to go back to basics and to say um, what we do. If you're a literature professor, what your job is is to teach literature, to understand literature, to show your students examples of great literature, and to and to teach them how to appreciate it. That's kind of the job, and that's a big job, and that's a lot, and it's and it's um, uh, very difficult and demanding and challenging. Um, there's doing other things, right, 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 either pretending you're not an expert at all um, or uh, uh, pretending you're an expert in economics or politics or, or, or whatever else. Those, I think, are counterproductive and have been part of what has led the humanities to its current dire state where you have students leaving the disciplines in droves. Yeah, and, and that would, uh, I mean, you, it's a commitment of years of learning and then most of the time, years of paying off student debt afterwards you're talking about a good portion of your life that you're dedicating to this and if there's if the point of it is just to i want to hang out with the professor um present company excluded of course i just i'm enjoying hanging out with you but it it, it does like i'm not spending uh, tens of thousands of dollars because i you know man i <laughs> to have a, a friendship with a professor right um right yeah, and and to have him pontificate to me without any basis for his authority, that that makes sense. Um, uh, before we go too far, because I think this is, uh, and and you mentioned this, and uh, I think you even you mentioned at the beginning, but how do we safeguard the equality of human dignity while advocating the importance of judgment? So this is something you you address a little bit, but is there uh, is there more that uh, could be done in that way? Uh, is there uh, better terminology? Is there uh, more uh, is there more discussion on that front that you could give? Because that's obviously what everyone's really concerned about, right? That this idea that uh, if I start saying that I'm better, like it, it comes down to that I'm better than you, right? And like yeah. that's a really scary, you know, it's like that, like a uh, idea. So can you can you talk a little bit more about that? How, yeah, how to defend that? Yes. Yes, absolutely. And, and 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 what I would say is that the fear that people have that by saying I'm an expert, I'm saying that I'm better than my students or I'm better than you or 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 or, or whatever, that is a uh, it's a false and misguided fear. Because if you look at the situation, let's imagine myself as a first generation uh, college student when I came uh, to my first uh, literature class in college, um, I wasn't imagining that the guy in front of the class, the woman in front of the class would be someone who was just intrinsically better than me and all I could do was bow down and listen to them. No, what I felt was this person knows more than I do right now. What I expect to get from this education is for me to be able through being educated to be in a position to be on the same level of, as this person, or at least in the same kind of ballpark of this person in terms of that knowledge, right? Um, so it's, 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 it's just, it's, it's, it's real simple. There's no sense that I'm better than my students 
or that I can't learn from my students, that my students just have to shut up and listen or anything like that. It really is, uh, uh, and that I think is part of this, this ideological fear of elitism, um, which so often is hypocritical. Uh, uh, you know, for example, um, people will, will, will rail about the elitism of, uh, of writers and, and, and literature professors while celebrating billionaires as populists, right? It's just completely insane. Um, <laughs> But so so um, so yeah, the, 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 uh, uh, there's no contradiction between a respect for the intrinsic equality of persons and a belief in expert judgment and in the existence of expertise. There's lots of things that I don't know how to do, and if I, you know, music is one of them, right? And so if I want to learn more about music, which at various times I have in my life, and I've never successfully, I'm a terrible musician, I'll never be good at musician, uh, a good musician, but I go to someone who knows how to do it and they can teach me how to do it. And the idea is um, uh, they can share their expertise with me so I can get where they are. So I still tell my students, I can't tell you in a quick marketing blur why the work that I've, the works I've put on this syllabus are worth your while. But the, the bargain I'm making with you is that if you accept my authority and take this class and read these books, you will be in a position after the, we, we're reading these books to be able to either say, hey, I think this book is pretty great or no, actually, I've heard your arguments. I've heard how you, how you work this and I think this book is crappy. So they can totally disagree with me. My class is about putting them on the same level, educating them so that they can have informed, make informed judgments themselves. So that's the kind of uh, uh, basic difference. And I get that people are afraid that, um, uh, uh, that, that setting themselves up as experts involves a conflict with the respect for the dignity of the students and so forth. But I think that's a, it's a, it's a, it's a false conflict. However, I think there are real versions of that which again is when someone says to you, um, I'm not an expert on anything, but you've still got to take this class and you're still paying a lot of money to take this class. And I'm actually teaching you a bunch of stuff that I don't have any, you have no grounds to believe me as take me as an expert for. That I think is genuinely, and, and that's, that's actually what you see happening. It's not like professors anywhere have abdicated their authority. It's not like colleges have stopped charging tens of thousands of dollars for these degrees, right? It's just that it's now operating or tends to operate under this faux egalitarianism, this false egalitarianism that often conceals really the really creepy inequalities um, that go along with consumer culture and neoliberalism. Uh, pardon me if I take a little digression here. Um, are you familiar with the work of uh, Hans-Jörg Gadamer Paul, and uh, Paul Ricoeur? Yes. Uh, so you talk a bit about uh, census communists in um, in the book, and Gadamer actually has an account of that going back to Vico as a. Uh, and this is this is my backgrounds in philosophical hermeneutics, so this this obviously popped in my head. But uh, that census communists was redefined in the Enlightenment to be kind of this natural common sense, whereas before it was in fact. Uh, practical wisdom that had been passed down and formed through society, which was very similar to what your account of judgment, this idea of, uh, whiz of knowledge that could only be passed through train training in particulars. Um, so I didn't know if you were familiar with that. I didn't know, um, 
but I, I found that particular argument, uh, your, your argument here to be very similar to Vico's uh, critique of Descartes. And so yes. if anyone listening to this hasn't uh, found this helpful, not helpful, convincing, I definitely think it's helpful. The, uh, I think the, the argument with uh, Descartes, like to me, this just this, this all made sense, right? That uh, Descartes is talking about using formal explicit rules that we things we can explicitly say in small parts, build it up. And then Vico says, that's fine for people who have already achieved a certain level of maturity, right? To, to that we can build up whole arguments and whole ways of life. But when you talk to children, it's very obvious that you have, you have to start with, no, this you need to, I know you don't understand now, but you need to be trained in the basics. And it's amazing to me how often just that form of argument where I take what someone is their method and I apply it to teaching kids and it either shows that it works or it doesn't. Cause that's it. Like you're <laughs> like, well, college students actually know quite a bit. It's like, well, I want you to take this idea of judgment and I want you to apply it to kids. Right. Like, <laughs> yeah. like, yeah, yeah, like totally. I mean, uh, you know, good night moon is great, but if you're still reading it when you're 32, you're 40 <laughs> and that's your main source of literary diet. I think we, we would be rightfully distrustful. I think that, that comes out in Kant, right? Like of your, of you, like, I think there's something else wrong here. So uh, if you keep going to the absurd with it, you know, even to the point of like, and I don't even think that's absurd. I think the pedagogy of, of younger children, it becomes even more dramatic, right? Like it's oh, very yeah, obvious, yeah. like the, this, I'm not saying that I am worth more than my children. I, I homeschool my kids, uh, but I, like my authority and my my better judgment is vastly clear. Like it's just like the the difference between us in, in literary judgment. <laughs> like it's it's laughable, right? So yes, I, anyway, yes. I found that super. I, I I like to me this this all makes sense, but I, I thought that was an additional layer to to what we're talking about. Um. You give a, an, a list of 13 elements of expertise. Um, if you had to add an element, because you said it's not an exhaustive list. If you had to add an element, what would you add? Um, yeah, it's, a, it's an interesting question. Um, I can't, you know, if I, if I could think of it, I probably would have added it. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> uh, 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 yeah, yeah. Uh, but 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 just I, I just wanted to what you were saying earlier about Gadamer and, sure. and 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 teaching kids I thought was really right um, uh, and and it, you know uh, one way I, I approach a very similar and you Gadamer is also pushing back against Kant um, who had this idea which I think has been a really sort of corrosive and negative idea in terms of education which is that the aesthetic is really um about just what you know you you know whatever you happen to look at and think is beautiful and there's this sense that i expect others to agree with it because we all have this census communities or common sense um uh, of the beautiful and so forth and what's so weird about that and 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 others have looked at this um as well uh What's so weird about that is that it, it it doesn't take account of the role of education, as 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 you as you say, right? Which is that um, uh, one needs to be educated to appreciate many different forms uh, of of beauty. And in fact, what happened and what what people have sort of analyzed is that 
you see that same move that we were just talking about, whereas people in the Kantian tradition would say that these things are just innately beautiful. And they would go uh, like, like John Ruskin. There's a lot of people in the 19th century who would do that, that these things are innately beautiful. And then they would go into working class communities and they would be like, and, 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 those, and, and those communities would not think that those same things were innately beautiful that John Ruskin did. He was an upper class guy. And therefore he would sort of like be, throw up his hands eventually and be like, these idiots, you can't teach these people anything. You know, <laughs> so it's, that's real elitism, right? That's real elitism, right. that pretense that everyone should have it naturally. You don't need to educate anyone. No, you do need to educate people. And what you say about teaching kids, that's how we all learn, um, which is through example. You know what I'm saying? It's not through a list of rules. It's like, you know, uh, yeah, I'm going to uh, uh, teach you how to read a bicycle. Here's the manual of 52 pages of how to read it. And here's the bike. Now you go ride the bicycle. There's no one in the world would ever learn how to ride a bike like that. You learn through example. And that's the same way that we do in literary education is I can't tell you in advance why Samuel Beckett or why Toni Morrison or why Gwendolyn Brooks is great. But after you've spent, after we spend some time working with this literary work, by example, we're able to show how and why you can get into this work, um, uh, what perspectives it opens up, and so forth. So the same principle that we use in teaching our kids, that that's those same dynamics, that's just how you, the human mind learns. Yeah, I, and I think that becomes clear over time. Uh, something you mentioned with John Ruskin, uh, and that becomes important in your work as well, um, is allowing works to help create their own criteria. Because if you rely solely on formal definitions, you tend to privilege uh, uh, very specific genres, all, often older and more established, um, and in many ways elitist. You know, uh, you know, you see with someone like John Ruskin not appreciating perhaps. <laughs> the the working class opinion right but uh which is a slightly different um thing but uh can you talk a little bit about how uh, uh going up to a work uh close reading of new types of work can help you create new criteria for dealing with new types of work yeah yeah absolutely and so um you know uh and that is something that I that that I that I say I I, I um uh, in judging works it, it, it's a, it's a principle I take from John Keats the poet who talked in a famous letter that um the 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 capacity a poet needs the most is what he called negative capability the capacity to remain in doubt the capacity basically to learn new things right to to not be feel confident that I have all the answers. And what you find paradoxically is that expertise, at least in literary study, is very often a learning to be comfortable with what you don't know and to be open to what you don't know, right? Um, one of the marks when myself, when I, was, when I was younger, the mark of my sort of lack of education was that I would know all the answers. You know what I'm talking right, about? Like, right. hey, I know everything. I knew more at age 14 than I know now at age 46, right? Uh, uh, in my own mind, right? You know what I mean? In, in the sense that what I've learned through through training and practice and so forth and experience is how much I don't know, right? And so I think that principle is key to expertise. It's a learning to be comfortable with what we don't know because the human mind very naturally moves. We're uncomfortable with doubt and we want to shut it down. 
We want to reach for easy answers and easy explanations. Um, but sitting with complex, challenging, unfamiliar new literary works, artistic works, really exercises that capacity to sit with something and be like, I don't know what's going on here. I don't know how I'm supposed to judge this. I don't know what the key features of this work are. And so what I try to cultivate in my practice as a teacher and as a, as a, as a writer about literature is that capacity to, to, to sit with that and figure out what criteria is right for this work. So to take an example, um, you know, uh, I, I, I wrote something a while back on rap music and on the, the genre of gangster rap in particular, which I think has some amazing examples of, of, of really powerful artworks. But the problem was, is that the way all the critics were looking at rap, they were dismissing the genres of rap that were really important to me that I thought were really powerful because they did not have the right political message or they weren't um, formerly inventive in the way that certain kinds of East Coast rap were, where Southern rap, which is the kind I was interested in, tended to do different things. And my thought was, look, I think you guys are just applying the wrong criteria to this work. To really find out what makes this interesting and fascinating, we have to look at some different kinds of criteria. So that, that would just be one example of how aesthetic judgment works and how we can say, um, it's not the case that a single yardstick, whether it's complexity or formal inventiveness or, you know, or, 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 or deep characterization, you know, because think about science fiction, which I also love. Science fiction typically doesn't work through characterization. It works through world building, right? Um, or, or, or interesting ideas about the future, about technology. So uh, uh, I think part of the, 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 the practice of aesthetic judgment is um, a capacity to, to sort of be in doubt and to be willing to put your own criteria up to the test of what this new work is showing you. Yes, and I, you say that is the danger of these very formal, as you say, one yardstick approaches, is that they tend to eliminate whole swaths of important art, um, especially new and upcoming art, because uh, I think you talk about Adorno uh, famously not being able to handle jazz if i remember yes. that yeah like yep, yep, he just doesn't yep. he didn't have the categories to deal with it um which at the time was not as big a deal uh for him as like today if you were to say that jazz is not a a, a powerful art form <laughs> and that you yeah. could that just to dismiss it would not delegitimize jazz it would delegitimize your critique um uh if that makes sense one uh, hopes one hopes although yeah, yeah. there's no shortage of people who say who would say just because jazz is is it's declined in popularity and in sales and therefore there are people who want to say you know again it's that market egalitarianism that whatever's popular rules but yeah absolutely if you're if uh, uh, I would agree someone who's going to dismiss jazz is is someone who just doesn't know jazz right and the same thing we see with uh, classical music right I mean we're talking about hundreds of years of tradition and it's becoming less popular over time um, so I. When you see uh, one of the things that distinguishes something like the humanities from the hard sciences, if I can use that term, uh, is that you have a moving target. Do you think that's part of what that need for that negative capability or negative capacity? Um, so, for example, uh, there's uh, I did a lot of work in philosophy of art about the uh, the 
artwork as an object and people kept trying to define what art was. And as soon as there's any consensus about what art mm -hmm. was, an artist would immediately create something that broke that definition intentionally. So because they didn't like being confined, um, is that, would you say that is part of that need for negative ca capacity? Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Yes. Yes. And I, 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 I think that, um, Literature is moving and evolving. And one of the important, you know, this, this brings up a really interesting um, question, which is that the kind of aesthetic judgment that happens in, 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 in literature departments, English classes, um, is part of a broader ecosystem in that, of, uh, uh, that includes writers, agents, publishers, editors, um, and, and, and so forth. Um, and you need that negative capability, but you also need judgment and the capacity to say what's working, what's powerful, and have arguments about what's working, what's powerful, and what's not. And one reason why I think it's so important for literature departments and academia to continue to revive this function of aesthetic judgment is that aesthetic judgment, because it used to be back in, if, if, if 50 years ago, you could say, well, Okay, literature professors really don't have to do aesthetic judgment. Maybe they could just like go back and do philology or they could do the history of literature because the people who are going to do literary judgment are, are literary critics working for newspapers or magazines or whatever. But what's happened is that journalism has been eviscerated, right, by the rise of the internet. And it, a, a lot of reviewers who are out there have written about this. A guy named Christian Lorenzen wrote a, a piece for Harper's Magazine about this, which is that reviewers now are, are, are basically, they want clicks, they want likes. That's what their employers are really after. And they want to be, they want you to be celebrating whatever the latest pop phenomenon is. They don't want you to take a resistant view to the market. They want you to be a cheerleader for the market and whatever the, the market throws up. So um, that crucial function of criticism, which used to be handled by journalism, uh, it has now been, been uh, sort of driven away from a lot of our, our public spaces and our public venues. And... You know, we, we need, and that's why the, the, the great thing about academia is it is sheltered to a degree from the marketplace. And so we can cultivate judgment and ways of thinking and speaking and teaching that aren't totally dependent on the bottom line or on clicks or whatever, right? Um, and, and, and that's, and, and that's how new generations of writers learn from the past create new traditions, break from the old, old traditions. You need to know those traditions before you can break from them in meaningful and powerful ways. And so it's all part of that ecosystem, uh, a, a, a shifting mosaic, the new works that come about, it's not as if the, the literature professor is totally detached from those new works coming out. Very often, there are students have been creating those new works. You know what I'm saying? And so there's this kind of, there's this, it, it, it's, a, it's a really fascinating and interesting kind of, relationship though. Yeah. And, uh, one, uh, your discussion about the evisceration of journalism, I think everyone senses that. I think there's, uh, what, what you've talked about, these kind of hidden ads, you know, these, um, masked ads that are really just cheerleading the market. And the other side, uh, that I would add to that is the need to, it, it if it's not cheerleading, it's outrage. 
It's not careful. You, you can't just be like, hey, this work is mediocre, right? You can't, <laughs> which is yeah. often the truth about most works of art, that they are just mediocre. It has to be, this is the worst thing that's ever happened, right? It has to be <laughs> one or the other because no one wants to read an article where, <laughs> in this age of distraction that says, yeah, it was okay. <laughs> like, yeah, like, no, totally, you're right. Um, and outrage, moral outrage. Usually it's moral outrage. Yes. It's like, this work offends my morality, which is sort of like, you know, and, and you know, what I want to know, is it good though? Because right? it can be good. It can, offend, you know, it can offend my morality and still be good. It could be interesting, be fascinating. There's all kinds of works that I find, you know, I don't agree with morally, right? Um, but whose work I, I find completely fascinating and amazing and has enriched my life. But we've lost that capacity. Now, moral judgment, everyone does moral judgment. Aesthetic judgment is taboo, but everyone feels like they can be the moral judge, which, which I think is bizarre. So I, that leads me kind of, I want to be respectful of your time. In kind of my last question, uh, you talked about, uh, and I want to make sure that I read this correctly because of the way you just phrased that. <laughs> Um, as to what qualifies a literature professor to be a moral judge, I cannot say. My final speculation or hope for this book is that it will inspire someone to make the case for literature professors as moral experts. Uh, to show what moral expertise can teach us that we don't already know. Uh, to describe the skills and knowledge underlying this expertise and to exemplify moral approaches to literary works. Which I think there is something there. I think, you know, even as you're talking about Polanyi's discussion of expert judgment, um, that it provides a defense for uh, expert judgment itself of, of literature. I think the fact that in many ways, literature communicates experience and particulars in a way that other things don't, he, he provides a defense there of a certain type of knowledge that is just judgment in self, which, mm -hmm. and yes. I think everyone does understand this kind of, there is a moral connection, right? right. Like, uh, and the easiest one, and a lot of people do talk about this, is empathy, right? But I think there's more about the ability to discern carefully. Um, I understand that that is beyond the scope of this book, but uh, can you talk a little bit uh, about how uh, literature makes us better morally? Yeah, I mean, well, the, and, 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 and there's a terminology problem there that I, um, I, I, I address in, in a passage a little before that. but Yes. But, I might have, I, I should have probably used a different term. I should have used moralistic instead of moral, because I think what, the, the kind of thing I'm reacting against is really moralistic judgments, right? Which are um, I am gonna uh, uh, tackle work because it it doesn't fall into certain categories or stereotypes of what I consider to be morally good. It doesn't fall. It doesn't illustrate the dogma, moral dogma that I'm. Uh, expressing, and this is what you find on social media culture, and many people have written about this. Um, I think it's a very bad thing with literature, and I, I, I think that um, it's corrosive of, of literature. But absolutely, there is a, one can get all kinds of, I believe there is a way to be, to, to, to have literary education be moral education. And I think for me, it starts with that negative capability. I think there's a moral quality to withholding my sense of projecting what I think onto everything in the world. I think one of the great tragedies of human life from the beginning of time has been how much of life's richness 
we exclude by um, our um, snap moral judgments. And so if we can think of artistic or literary education as a way of loosening our hold on what we know and, and being open to the, the, the complexities of human experience, the way it doesn't slot into easy uh, uh, categories, that I think is a kind of moral work. And it's opposed to what goes by the, under the, the aegis of moral education currently, which is, I'm just gonna express outrage about this work because it does X bad thing. Even, you know what I mean? Like, 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 um, uh, 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 it, it, it's, it's, uh, it has some heterodox or unorthodox view uh, that I'm gonna react against. So there's a difference between moralistic and moral. And I probably, if I were, the one change I would make to this book, if I were to rewrite it now, would be to replace that word moral there with moralistic. That makes sense. Yes. Uh, and uh, if anyone's struggling with your discussion of negative capacity or capability, um, uh, you also reference, and I can't remember the name of uh, the professor that uh, who you who you are referencing in this case, but uh, the suspension of values for education, that when you are being educated, you are suspending your values in the hopes of re uh, receiving better values, right? And yes, so, yes, and, yes. And so that's a lot of what's happening in literature is that you are learning to, I mean, and we see that uh, in lots of different cases of expertise, but that that might be another uh, avenue for someone to understand what we're talking about, that we have to have as human beings, the capacity to change our values over time, if we're going to better ourselves. And, uh, and that idea of, we, we do no one any favors by telling they're okay when they're not okay, right? And so the, I, like, it's not elitist to say, I want to make myself better. And it's not elitist exactly. to yes. follow after somebody. Um, in fact, these are fundamental, important uh, human pursuits, um, which is why I think this, this book uh, is so important. Um, is there anything that you would want to leave uh, our listeners with, kind of like a, a last call to action or a last observation? I mean, the, the, the only observation I, I, would, I would make and I, 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 I is, is, is for, you know, if, if we reflect on what our motivation is, if we want to take an English class or if we want to learn to be better readers or we want to understand why certain works that are regarded as classics got that reputation, um, we are involved in, in exactly what you just said, in, in a pursuit in which we're um, trying to overcome our current current values and acquire new values, um, or at least to expose ourselves to new values and then to decide whether those are values that comport with our vision for ourselves. Um, and that's what humanistic education is all about. Hmm. Thank you. Oh, what a great way to sum up what we've been talking about today. Thank you again for coming on, Dr. Kuhn. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. I really appreciate the great questions. <laughs>